Wasted, a memoir of bulimia and anorexia by Maria Hornbacher. The purpose of this book. I have an eating disorder, no question about it. It and I live in an uncomfortable state of mutual antagonism. That is, to me, a far cry better than once upon a time when it and I shared a bed, a brain, a body, when my sense of worth was entirely contingent upon my ability to starve. A strange equation and an altogether too common belief. One's worth is exponentially increased with one's incremental disappearance. I am not here to spill my guts and tell you about how awful it's been that my daddy was mean and my mother was mean and some kids called me fatso in the third grade because none of the above is true. I am not going to repeat at length how eating disorders are, quote, about control because we've all heard it. It's a buzzword, reductive, categorical, uh, a tidy way of hurting people into a mental quarantine and saying, there, that's that. Eating disorders are about, yes, control and history, philosophy, society, personal strangeness, family fuck-ups, autoerotics, myth, mirrors, love and death, and S&M, magazines and religion, the individual's blindfolded stumble walk through an ever stranger world. The question is really not if eating disorders are neurotic and indicate a glitch in the mind, even I would have had a hard time justifying ra rationally the practice of starving oneself to death or feasting only to toss back the feast. But rather, why? Why this glitch? What flipped this switch? Why so many of us? Why so easy a choice, this? Why now? Some toxin in the air? Some freak of nature that has turned women against their own bodies with a virulence unmatched in history, all of a sudden, with no cause? The individual does not exist outside of society. There are reasons why this is happening, and they do not lie in the mind alone. This book is neither a tabloid tale of mysterious disease nor a testimony to a miracle cure. It's simply the story of one woman's travels to a darker side of reality and her decision to make her way back on her own terms. My terms amount to cultural heresy. I had to say, I will eat what I want and look as I please and laugh as loud as I like and use the wrong fork and lick my knife. I had to learn strange and delicious lessons, lessons too few women learn, to love the thump of my steps, the implication of weight and presence and taking of space, to love my body's rebellious hungers, responses to touch, to understand myself as more than a brain attached to a bundle of bones. I have to ignore the cultural cacophony that sings songs all day long. Too much, too much, too much. As Abra Fortune Chernick writes, quote, Gaining weight and pulling my head out of the toilet was the most political act I ever committed. I wrote this book because I believe some people will recognize themselves in it, eating disordered or not, and because I believe, perhaps naively, that they might be willing to change their own behavior, 
get help if they need it, entertain the notion that their bodies are acceptable, that they themselves are neither insufficient nor in excess. I wrote it because I disagree with much of what is generally believed about eating disorders and wanted to put in my two cents for whatever it's worth. I wrote it because people often dismiss eating disorders as manifestations of vanity, immaturity, madness. It is in some ways all of these things, but it is also an addiction. It is a response, albeit a rather twisted one, to a culture, a family, a self. I wrote this because I want to dispel two common and contradictory myths about eating disorders, that they are an insignificant problem solved by a little therapy and a little pill and a pat on the head, a, quote, stage that, quote, girls go through. I know a girl whose psychiatrist told her that her bulimia was just part of, quote, normal adolescent development, and conversely, that they must belie true insanity, that they only happen to, quote, those people whose brains are incurably flawed, and that those people are hopelessly sick. An eating disorder is not usually a phase, and it is not necessarily indicative of madness. It is quite maddening, granted, not only for the loved ones of the eating disordered person, but also for the person herself. It is, at the most basic level, a bundle of deadly contradictions, a desire for power that strips you of all power, a gesture of strength that divests you of all strength, a wish to prove that you need nothing, that you have no human hungers, which turns on itself and becomes a searing need for the hunger itself. It is an attempt to find an identity, but ultimately, it strips you of any sense of yourself, save the sorry identity of sick. It is a grotesque mockery of cultural standards of beauty that winds up mocking no one more than you. It is a protest against cultural stereotypes of women that in the end makes you seem the weakest, the most needy and neurotic of all women. It is the thing you believe is keeping you safe, alive, contained, and in the end, of course, you find it's doing quite the opposite. These contradictions begin to split a person in two. Body and mind fall apart from each other, and it is in this fissure that an eating disorder may flourish, in the silence that surrounds this confusion that an eating disorder may fester and thrive. An eating disorder is in many ways a rather logical elaboration on a cultural idea. While the personality of an eating disordered person plays a huge role, we are often extreme people, highly competitive, incredibly self-critical, driven, perfectionistic, tending towards excess. And while the family of an eating disordered person plays a fairly crucial part in creating an environment in which an eating disorder may grow like a hothouse flower, I do believe that the cultural environment is an equal, if not greater, culprit in the sheer popularity of eating disorders. There were numerous methods of self-destruction available to, available to me, countless outlets that could have channeled my drive, perfectionism, ambition, and an excess of general intensity, millions of ways in which I could have responded to a culture that I found highly problematic. I did not choose those ways. 
I chose an eating disorder. I cannot help but think that had I lived in a culture where thinness was not regarded as a strange state of grace, I might have sought out another means of attaining that grace, perhaps one that would not have so seriously damaged my body and so radically distorted my sense of who I am. I do not have all the answers. In fact, I have precious few. I will pose more questions in this book than I can respond to. I can offer little more than my perspective, my experience of having an eating disorder. It is not an unusual experience. I was sicker than some, not as sick as others. My eating disorder has neither exotic origins nor a religious conversion conclusion. I am not a curiosity, nor is my life particularly curious. That's what bothers me, that my life is so common. That should not be the case. I would not wish my journey through a shimmery, funhouse mirrored, covered hell on anyone. I would not wish the bitter aftermath, that stage we can never foresee when we're sick, the damaged body, the constant temptation, the realizations of how we have failed to become ourselves, how afraid we were and are, and how we must start over from scratch. No matter how great that fear on anyone, I don't think people realize when they're just getting started on an eating disorder or even when they're in the grip of one, that it is not something that you just get over. For the vast majority of eating disordered people, it is something that will haunt you for the rest of your life. You may change your behavior, change your beliefs about yourself and your body, give up that particular way of coping in the world. You may learn, as I have, that you would rather be a human than a human's thin shell. You may get well, but you may never forget. I would do anything to keep people from going where I went. Writing this book was the only thing I could think of. Wasted by Maria Hornbacher the first time. It was that simple. One minute, I was your average nine-year-old, shorts and a t-shirt and long brown braids, sitting in the yellow kitchen, watching Brady Bunch reruns, munching on a bag of Fritos, scratching the dog with my foot. The next minute, I was walking in a surreal haze I would later compare to the hum induced by speed, out of the kitchen, down the stairs, into the bathroom, shutting the door, putting the toilet seat up, pulling my braids back with one hand, sticking my first two fingers down my throat, and throwing up until I spat blood. Flushing the toilet, washing my hands and face, smoothing my hair, walking back up the stairs of the sunny, empty house, sitting down in front of the television, picking up my bag of Fritos, scratching the dog with my foot. How did your eating disorder start? The therapist asks years later, watching me pick at my nails, curled up in a ball in an endless series of leather chairs. I shrug. Hell if I know, I say. I just wanted to see what would happen. Curiosity, of course, killed the cat. It wouldn't hit me what I'd done until the next day in school. I would be in the lunchroom of Concord Elementary, Adena, Minnesota, sitting among my prepubescent gangly friends hunched over painful nubs of breasts and staring at my lunch tray. 
I would realize that having done it once, I'd have to keep doing it. I would panic. My head would throb, my heart do a little arrhythmic dance, my newly unbalanced chemistry making it seem as though the walls were tilting, the floor undulating beneath my penny-loafered feet. I'd push my tray away. Not hungry, I'd say. I did not say, I'd rather starve than spit blood. And so, I went through the looking glass, stepped into the netherworld, where up is down and food is greed, where convex mirrors cover the walls, where death is honor and flesh is weak. It is ever so easy to go, harder to find your way back. I look back on my life the way one watches a badly scripted action flick, sitting at the edge of the seat, bursting out, no, no, don't open that door. The bad guy is in there and he'll grab you and put his hand over your mouth and tie you up and then you'll miss the train and everything will fall apart. Except there is no bad guy in this tale. The person who jumped through the door and grabbed me and tied me up was, unfortunately, me. My double image, the evil skinny chick who hisses, don't eat, I'm not going to let you eat. I'll let you go as soon as you're thin. I swear I will. Everything will be okay when you're thin. Liar. She never let me go. And I've never quite been able to wriggle my way free. Wasted. A memoir of bulimia and anorexia by Maria Hornbacher. Junior High. Something changed the year I entered junior high. For one thing, bulimia took over my life. It stopped being a moonlighting gig, something I just happened to feel like doing when things in my head were particularly crazy or when I was angry or lonely or sad or flat. It began to have a force and took on a life of its own. From this point on, there are no memories that are not related to food or my body or barfing. It became a centripetal force that sucked me in, something I knew and needed badly all the time. I did not put a bite of food in my mouth without considering if, when, and where I would throw up. I did not even look in the mirror without thinking fat. Consider, for instance, junior high parties. They started at 7 and ended at 10. If you were lucky, they ended a little bit later. You wore a dress that made you look thin. You tried on every single piece of clothing you or your mother owned in search of the thing that would make you look thin. Fifteen-odd kids gather awkwardly in the basement of someone's gorgeous, enormous house. You all start eating. This is relatively normal. This is what people do at parties. They eat the Doritos and pretzels and ruffles, and nobody eats the veggies. You nibble on cookies and Hershey kisses that somebody's mother has put in a cut crystal bowl. Somebody's mother is hovering in the doorway, nervously glancing at the mixture of boys and girls. A pizza is ordered. Someone puts a movie in the VCR. However, if you are bulimic, when the lights go out and cute kitty couples pair off, slurpily kissing and fumbling on the couches, 
You will walk up the plush carpeted stairs, heart pounding, face flushed with fear that the food is going to be digested before you can get it out. You will ask the sweet, perfectly made up hovering mother where the bathroom is. She will point it out to you, smiling sweetly. You will go into the bathroom, take note of the brass fixtures on the sink, the Laura Ashley print wallpaper, the fresh flowers in a Waterford vase, the wicker magazine rack holding Condé Nast Traveler and Forbes. You will take a mental inventory of all these things and scrutinize your face in the mirror. You will beg God to keep your face normal after you puke as you turn on the water full force to drown out the retching and splashing, hoping to hell that the walls are thick so nobody hears. You will lift the toilet seat, carefully slide your fingers inside your mouth and down your throat and puke until you see orange, the Doritos. You ate them first because you, like most bulimics, have developed a system of markers Eating brightly colored food first so you can tell when it's all out. And it all comes out in reverse order. The pizza, cookies, ruffles, pretzels, Doritos, all swimming in dark swirls of Coke. You straighten, flush. You turn the water down, put your hands under it, scrub with the soft soap and a special mashing soft soap cover. You scrub hard, sniffing your hands and forearms. You look at your face. Thank you, God. No puffiness. Eyes a little watery, but not red or bulging. You rinse your mouth with water, then look under the sink for mouthwash. Find it, slosh it around. Redo your lipstick, smile at the mirror. Eyes bright and wide, open the door, go downstairs. Your friends turn and say laughing, why was the water on? In Minnesota houses, water pipes run downward through the center of the house and end in the basement. Three-fourths away, you can hear water running. You laugh and say, I'm paranoid about people hearing me pee. Everyone laughs. Your boyfriend, teasing, says, we heard you anyway. You freeze, smiling. No, I'm kidding, he says. You laugh nervously. Take your place beside him. Sit on your hands to hide the shaking, the nicks on the knuckles of the first two fingers of your right hand. Self-induced vomiting causes abrasions on the back of the dominant hand or knuckles. Calluses form, creating what in medical parlance is called Russell's sign. Wasted, a memoir of bulimia and anorexia by Maria Hornbacher. Sick friend. It was a landmark event. We were having lunch. We were playing normal. After years in the underworld, we'd risen to the surface and were glancing around surreptitiously, taking tentative breaths of air. Jane just out of the hospital, pale and shy-eyed, let her hair fall over her face, as though to keep from being seen as she committed this great sin of consumption, this confession of weakness, this admission of having a body with all its impertinent demands. I was kicked back in my chair, extolling the virtues of health and staying alive, when she glanced up at me and whispered, 
my heart, my heart feels funny. I sat up and said, what do you mean? Like your physical heart? She nodded and said, it, it, it's skipping and, and stopping. I took her pulse, then grabbed my keys with one hand and hers with the other and hustled her to my car, head spinning with memory and statistics as we careened toward the emergency room. The first months of, quote, health are the most dangerous, the body reacting violently to the shock of being fed after years of starvation, the risk of heart attack high, especially just out of the hospital when anorexic behavior is likely to kick back in. Jane has her eyes closed and is breathing hard. She's 21. I can't let her die. I know how this feels, the tightening of the chest, the panic, the what have I done? Wait, I was kidding. Eating disorders linger so long undetected, eroding the body in silence, and then they strike. The secret is out. You're dying. In the emergency room, the doctor took her pulse again and ignored me, first in bemusement, then in irritation, as I asked him to please give her an EKG, take her blood pressure sitting and standing, check her electrolytes. He turned to me finally after poking her here and there and said, Excuse me, miss, but I'm the doctor. I said, Yes, but he waved me away and asked Jane how she felt. She looked at me. Asking an anoretic how she feels is an exercise in futility. I said, listen, she's got an eating disorder. Please just take the tests. The doctor impatient said, what do you mean by eating disorder? I was floored. All I could see was Jane's heart monitor ticking out her weak and erratic pulse. As this man stood here peering down from on high telling me that he was the doctor and that I, a mere young woman who had spent 14 years in the hell of eating disorders, should keep quiet. I did not keep quiet. I started to yell. In the year that followed, as both she and I gained strength, weight, voice, Jane began to sit straighter in her chair began to say softly at first, then louder, those words so many millions of people cannot bear to say aloud, I'm hungry.